A reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, and we will pick up the reading in verse 28, and we will read to the very end of the chapter. Please give attention to the reading of God's Word. Then the people of Israel went out and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls uh, being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones." All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn uh, with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all the males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on the very day that the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we trust and believe in your word. It is 
entirely trustworthy. There is no jot nor tittle of it that has passed away. All of it is for the edification and the upbuilding of us, your people. Today, would you help us once again to see the wonder of it? And beyond its teaching and its word, would you cause us by this word to commune with you, the living God? And would you renew us in heart and soul in the power of the gospel? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I appreciated Ethan's words just a moment ago, leading us into uh, confession with regards to humility. Boy, don't we all need a dose of humility, maybe more than a dose of humility. Uh, my father used to sometimes say to me, son, you'll either learn to be humble or you'll be humiliated. <laughs> One or the other is going to happen. It'll come either by way of invitation that you will embrace your gracious position before Almighty God, who is the King of heaven and earth, or He will, as it were, put you in your place in some way, shape, or form. In a very real sense, that's what's happening here with uh, Pharaoh in the passages before us here in Exodus chapter 12. Pharaoh is learning humility by way of humiliation. He is being humbled. He is being brought low. It's a reminder of the fact that this will happen at the end of time. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What that means is that Ascension Sunday will be globally recognized in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there will be no one who will not bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, some may do so willingly. I pray many and maybe all by God's grace in this room. And some may unwillingly, but all will bow. This is the reality of what the Scripture teaches us in the Word, and there's something of that strong and hard edge that's right here in Exodus chapter 12, something of Pharaoh himself learning that he is not God. He is not even king of Egypt, but that God is ruler of heaven and earth. As we look at Exodus chapter 12, we want to reflect on it in light of this Sunday, this one Sunday out of the 52 Sundays of the year where we pause and remember the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's very rare that we actually do this. <laughs> we pause and remember the ascension of Jesus Christ. Did you have it on your minds when you showed up this morning at church? No. In fact, some of you didn't even recognize it on the front of the bulletin until I drew your attention to it. You're like, oh, this is Ascension Sunday. Why is that important? Maybe that was the second point that sort of arose in your mind. We have a big to-do when it comes to Christmas. We, we pull out all the stops when it comes to Easter. But very often, ascension is like a blip on the radar, and yet it is not in redemptive history. The importance of ascension is made very plain in the Scriptures, and we want to take some time this morning to connect What's happening in Exodus chapter 12 to what happens later as the disciples witness Jesus rising from the earth into the heavenlies and gain the wisdom of the instruction of what's important about the ascension. And believe it or not, I think we see some direct parallels in the text that's before us here in Exodus chapter 12. But before we jump into that... Um, I want to just note the fact that we're at a point in the midst of this story that it felt like we were never going to get to. If you have been walking with us through the story of the book of Exodus, we never thought we would be at the place that Pharaoh finally says, you, up, go, get out of here. 
It's taken innumerable requests by Moses and Aaron and now 10 plagues for Pharaoh to get to a point where he's not just letting the people go, he is showing them the door. He is, he, they cannot get out of Egypt fast enough, as you can see in the text that's before us. And there's something of an irony that's actually embedded in Pharaoh's own words to Moses and Aaron. He's in the throes of grief himself. He's just lost his own son, as we learn in the midst of this text. Both uh, the, the worst criminal in Egypt who's locked away in the dungeon loses their firstborn, and in the highest throne room over the whole of the greatest nation of Egypt, there is also the loss of a firstborn. And so Pharaoh is here in the throes of grief, now calling Moses and Aaron to himself and listen to the command. This is not a request. This is a command coming from Pharaoh. And listen to the emphasis. Up, go out from among my people, both and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Be gone, right? It's this this rhythm of Do not linger here any longer. We are through with you. We are ready for you to go and serve the Lord. Now, the irony here is that you might recall this from back in chapter 10. Pharaoh had actually said to Moses and Aaron, On the day that you see my face next time, you will die. Okay, well, this is the next time they see Pharaoh's face. And it doesn't appear that things are going according to plan from Pharaoh's standpoint. He's in the reality of grief and death all around him. And just as he saw them during the plague of darkness, he now sees them in the middle of the darkness, but also a spiritual darkness that has descended upon him and the people of Egypt as the angel of death has come. And now, instead of forcing the people of Israel to stay, he can't get them out of there fast enough. And he does several things in that little statement there to show you that Pharaoh is now, though resistant to the Lord, has become convinced of Yahweh's kingship, power, and rule. Notice he says, you go and get out the people of Israel. He's never referred to them as a nation before. (laughs) They're always his slaves up until this moment. Now he's recognizing these are a people set apart unto Yahweh. Notice he uses the language of the Lord, and the language used there is the covenant name Yahweh that I've mentioned several times already. He, out of Pharaoh's own lips, he's now acknowledging Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. Now back in chapter 5, just by way of reminder, you remember when Moses first came to him and said, let my people go, he goes, I don't know who your God is. I've never heard of him. Apparently he's become convinced of them at this particular moment. He's now using his proper name to refer to. And then notice what he says. The only thing he wants them to go do now is to get out of Egypt and go serve the Lord. Up until this moment, all Pharaoh has wanted is for them to serve him. He's been after them to serve him. He's been, he's been asking the question, why do you think these people deserve to be free of me, their master? Well, clearly he has come to the recognition that Yahweh is master. And what we're seeing from Pharaoh in this passage is what one commentator put, an unconditional surrender. This is the white flag. This is the laying down of the armaments. This is to say, you win and I lose. Now, we know that that's happening in this text also by the language that's used in the exit of the people of Israel, that language especially of plunder. 
If you look in verse 33 of the text, you'll see that the Egyptians joined Pharaoh in their urgency to send the people of Israel out. They even say, listen, if we don't get these people out of here pretty soon, we're all going to be dead by the end of this. So the people of Israel didn't wait. They took their unleavened bread and they took the cloaks that were on their back and they began to make their way out of Egypt. But then what did Moses request the people to do? Well, to begin to ask the Egyptians for silver, for gold jewelry, for clothing. And notice in verse 36 that the people of Egypt begin to shower the people of Israel with exactly what it is that they asked. Now, the reason that's important is that that's referred to as plunder in the text. Plunder is a military term. It's a term that we use to describe the spoils of warfare after a king has laid low his enemies. These aren't gifts from the people of Egypt to the people of Israel. This is plunder willingly given up. So the language of the text is set in victory. It's set in a warfare that has happened between Pharaoh and between Yahweh. And Yahweh has won. And now all of the spoils of Egypt are being given to the people of Israel. Now, if you can look at that just for a moment, I hope that you see that the king has won victory through the blood of the lamb that was applied to the doorposts to enrich his people with an inheritance in order to deliver them from their greatest enemy. Do, do you see that happening in Exodus 12? Well, that's the story of the Bible. <laughs> that's the entire story of the scripture. That's actually what's happening. If you have been saved, you've been saved because you took refuge under the blood of the lamb. And the Lord has led you out of sin and death. He's been victorious over your greatest enemy. He's now deposited into your soul the spirit, which is the riches of the inheritance of God's grace. Isn't that the language we use in the New Testament? The riches of the inheritance that is ours in God's grace. And he's leading us as a pilgrim people unto the promised land where the people of Egypt, the people of Israel are about to go through the wilderness to the promised land. So that story that we're seeing unfolded in miniature here in Exodus chapter 12 hinges upon the victory, or we might even say the enthronement, of Yahweh over the enemy of the people of Israel. And that's really what Ascension Sunday is about. It's about the defeat of our greatest enemies and the fact of, that Christ has been vindicated. He's been received back home into the very throne room of heaven by which now he exercises power for the advance of his kingdom. And that's what's happening right now as we worship here this morning. So if you can see victory and enthronement led to deliverance and exodus, then you're in many ways actually seeing the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension being brought into the salvation of God's people. Now, because it's Ascension Sunday, I'm treating this text just slightly different than I normally would. Because we don't get the chance to really focus on the importance of the ascension, I want you to see that what shadowy here in Exodus chapter 12, is made clear throughout the pages of Scripture. The importance of the ascension and the power and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to make this note, I want to go back to the very first week in our study of Exodus. Because I know you'll remember our first week in the study of Exodus. It's like the back of your hand, I'm sure. Well, we actually looked at the Mount of Transfiguration for just a few moments 
in the midst of our introduction to the book of Exodus. That's found in Luke chapter 9. You might find it helpful to have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9 this morning because I'm going to reference that text a number of times as we're uh, making our way through uh, today's message. Now, we said in Exodus or in Luke chapter 9, one of the reasons that, that Luke 9 needs to be read in the context of Exodus and the unfolding of Exodus is that Moses shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is the great redeemer of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And he shows up right alongside Jesus Christ and Elijah there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they're together... Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're having a conversation, right? One of the most fascinating conversations in all of human history. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are having a little council on the top of Mount Transfiguration. And you and I are both saying to ourselves, we would love to know what it is they're chatting about. Well, we're told what it is that they're chatting about there in Luke chapter 9. If you look at verses 30 and 31, we're told this, Behold, the two men were talking with him, that's Jesus, who appeared in glory... And spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That was their topic of conversation. That's a very interesting description by Luke. Notice they're not talking about Jesus' ministry or about strategies to overcome the Pharisees. They're not even talking about the cross. They're not even talking about the resurrection. Notice what they're talking about. His departure. Okay. What's his departure? His ascension. They're talking about his leaving, his, his exiting, and his rising from earth into the heavenly places. Now, notice further that his departure is referred to as what? It's very unusual language. An accomplishment. It's probably not the language you and I would use. It's probably not how we would see his exiting or his ascending as something he's doing or accomplishing. But that's what the focus is of the discussion of Moses and Elijah. That his ascension, his departure is a form of accomplishment. Now we would see this very often as kind of a footnote in his ministry, just the exit strategy to get home. But that's not the way Luke casts it here for us. Now, Luke is, in a sense, shading for us this piece that we, I think, oftentimes have lost sight of and have not emphasized, is that the cross and the resurrection are incomplete without the ascension. That the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't finished in the full and complete sense of the term until he's on the throne of heaven itself. That the ascension is actually the consummation of the power and the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into his enthronement. Now you get the hint of this and how this is connected to Exodus when you look at that word departure. For those of you who have a study Bible kind of open here in Luke chapter 9 and you look at that word departure in Luke chapter 9, you begin to realize that there's something more going on than just leaving. The word there for departure is the word exodus. It's the word exodus. They're talking about Jesus' exodus. His ascension is also an exodus. His departure is also a leading people out. A leading people from bondage to, to freedom. 
a, a form of deliverance. Now, it's when you begin to understand this, that he ascended as his departure, and his departure was an exodus, you begin to understand why Moses and Elijah are there. Both of these guys did those things in the Old Testament. Moses knows a little bit about exoduses. He kind of led one, the biggest one in the Old Testament. If you follow Elijah, you'll see that he also crosses over the Jordan River and leads the people out. You'll also see that both of these men, in some sense, ascended. Moses goes up on a mountain and dies, and Elijah's carried up in a chariot of fire. All right, so we see all of these themes from the Old Testament of exodus and ascension being played out by Jesus standing here on the Mount of Transfiguration as they discuss his departure and his upcoming accomplishment. So Luke is trying to tell us that the departure of Jesus wasn't just an exit strategy, but it was a fulfillment. It was an ascension that gave way to an exodus, a deliverance. Now, I wouldn't advance it in that way unless I thought that was absolutely certain in the text. And Jesus really helps us here too. If you actually were to look at John 14 and Jesus' own words after Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, you hear Jesus speak of his coming ascension and the exodus that he's about to lead. He says to the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled, right? You know this passage well. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there, right? He's going to his Father's house to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where it is that I am. Now, if you hear Jesus's promises here, promises that we're still looking for, correct? We're still awaiting Jesus's own return. Part of what we see Jesus saying is, I'm ascending in order to prepare a place for you. Now, what does he do here as he exits the people of Israel, as he is enthroned over Israel and he lowers and lays low all of Israel's enemy? Where's he gonna, what's he going to do for the next 40 years? He's going to prepare the people for a place of which he will abide with them. That's where he's going. What's he doing right now after he's ascended and become victorious over our enemies? He's ascended to the heavenly place. And what's he doing? He's preparing a place for us. He's doing in a very real sense a very similar thing that he did for the people of Israel. And so what's he going to do? Well, he's going to come back. And when he comes out, I'm going to take you with me. He's going to exodus us. To the new heavens and the new earth. That's what he's going to do. His ascension is going to lead to our ultimate exodus when he returns. And we will be with him always. So he's telling us here in John chapter 14 to anticipate these themes in the unfolding of Jesus' ministry. And the culmination of his salvation. Now, all of this begins to sort of make sense when you begin to hear some of Jesus' strange language, or at least that's how it appears to us, after his resurrection. You remember the first person he uh, lays his eyes on is Mary Magdalene. She's come to the, to the grave after his resurrection in John chapter 20. And when she comes to him, 
uh, we're told that she clings to him. You know, it's that kind of clinging that, that a mom does with a child who she's lost in the grocery store for like 10 minutes and then finds him or her, of course, on the candy aisle. And then when they're found, the mom scoops that child up and holds on to them like, I will never let you go uh, again. After, of course, she scolds them severely. But, but she, she does that, right? That's what the mom does. It's that holding on that she's doing. And, and, and Jesus, very interestingly, we would be like, that's a natural impulse. She's, Jesus has been dead. She now sees him. She's trusted in him. And he says to her, woman, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. You go, it's an interesting response. I'm not yet ascended. You're looking for something that will come in my return. To be able to hold on to me physically as if to never let me go. That's coming. It's still coming. And he says to Mary Magdalene, I want you to know, don't cling to me like that yet. Because there's still more to come. I've not yet ascended to my heavenly father. I've not yet fulfilled all that you need, Mary, in order for, me to, for you to hold on to me in this way. I've got to complete what it is that I have already done. All right? So if you begin to see that language and you begin to understand that the disciples, when Jesus would say to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and be crucified by the scribes and the Pharisees. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And in a couple of his explanations of resurrection, he says, then I will ascend. He tells them he's going to ascend. And all the disciples are so bummed, right? They're always so upset. But by the time Jesus ascends at the end of the book of Luke, in Luke 24 and the beginning of Acts 1, as he's ascending in the heavenly places, you know what the disciples are doing now? We're told they worship him. They're joyous that Jesus is leaving them. Now that, I mean, that's just not normal in terms of someone that you love, right? My parents were here for a few days celebrating the graduation of Rosalind. And then they left. You know what we felt? Some sadness, right? Because we love each other. We hate to be apart from each other. We enjoy being together. That's a part of what you would anticipate for the disciples. What are the disciples doing? They're worshiping with joy. They're, they're in a very real sense, glad to see Jesus go. Not because he's going, but because of what it means. What's being accomplished. Well, I'd like to ask you the question, what did the disciples know about the ascension that caused them to worship? Because if we were to know the ascension deeply and well in its meaning, what would cause us to worship? If we knew, as the people of Israel knew, that Yahweh is more powerful than the greatest enemy on the earth, and he can deliver us and he can lead us out of bondage into freedom to a place that he's prepared for us, if we know that to be true, how can the ascension tie us into worship and with joy? Well, as we conclude our time together today, I want to give you a couple of points. And I, I've labored hard on these points to make them memorable. I've given you all peas. You're welcome. <laughs> Number one, what is the ascension? It's proof. It's proof. The ascension of Christ proves the Father's acceptance of Jesus and His sacrifice on our behalf. 
It proves the Father's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. It means that Jesus finished what he came to do. He was received back from the one who sent him. His mission has been accomplished and the Lord has received him. It's his vindication. The Father is now welcoming him into the throne room. And as the disciples see him being lifted into heaven, it's the recognition that at the end of the 40 days from Easter to the ascension, that the completion of the redemptive cycle is confirmed. It's proof that the Father has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. But secondly, it's a pledge. It's a pledge. The ascension of Christ is the pledge that the Father will accept us too. That the Father will accept us too. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9 of Hebrews that Christ is our surety. Literally the word could be translated guarantee or our pledge. The writer is saying that what Jesus receives, we receive. What he gets, we get. This means that as the disciples saw Jesus being vindicated and received by the Father, they knew that they too would be vindicated and would be received by the Father. It was a pledge, a kind of down payment, a surety that we indeed will be redeemed because Jesus has been received. It was a proof. It was a pledge. Thirdly, it was a preparation. It was a preparation. The ascension of Christ is the beginning of Jesus' preparation to bring us home. You see, when Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you, he's been hard at work since he left us. He's been getting both us ready by the Spirit, as we'll see in just a minute, but he's also been getting that place, that ultimate new heavens and new earth, that fullness of the kingdom ready for us so that we will have a home, a promised land in which we can dwell with him forever. And so it's, it makes sense, doesn't it, why the disciples would understand that Jesus is going home to prepare for us a home. Fourthly, Jesus' ascension is a pouring, is a pouring, P-O-U-R, I-N-G. And why do I say that? Well, the ascension of Christ sets in motion the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus says the most astonishing thing. He says, it is to your advantage, speaking to the disciples, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will, notice, here's what he's going to do. Convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment because they do not believe in me. That's the work of the Spirit. If you've ever come under conviction, if you've ever come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've ever noticed a growth within grace of becoming more like Him. You've noticed affections kindled within you for Christ. That's all the work of the Spirit. And Jesus says that when He goes away, He sends His Spirit. Do you know what we celebrate next week together? Pentecost. 
right? It's why immediately following the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, we read in Acts chapter 2 of the falling of the Holy Spirit and the radical conversion of the saints on that day. So we see the advance of the kingdom. We see even the the deepening of our relationship with Christ comes through the power of the Spirit. I was struck by a sermon a number of years ago that Ligon Duncan gave where he was speaking about Ephesians chapter 3, which is actually Paul's great prayer for our own spiritual strength. But he said this. He says, Jesus departs from us so that we might be closer to him. Now That sounds a little unusual. Jesus departs from us so that we might be closer to him. But the point is that Jesus, as a physical man, when he walked upon this earth, was, had a, he had a, an address. He had a geographical location. There was a GPS where he could be found. But when he sends the Spirit, he sends it into the hearts and the lives of his people. And he spread throughout all of the earth. He's able to advance his kingdom through the work of the Holy Spirit unrestricted. Which is why he can say at the end of the book of Matthew, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, the disciples knew that the Spirit was coming, and so they worshipped the Lord with joy. And then fifthly and finally, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is a preview. It's a preview. We might call it a sneak peek of what everyone will one day see. You see, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul says that Jesus made himself nothing and he took on the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And thus, here's what Paul writes, thus God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do You see, the disciples saw that. They worshipped on the day of Jesus' ascension. They knew he was headed in to the throne room, to the fullness of his reign. The disciples glimpsed what one day we will see fully when Jesus returns. Because we're told in Acts chapter 1 verse 11 by the angel that this same Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come back. He's going to come back. And he's going to come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's the language of Acts 1.11. The return of Jesus Christ then is a mirror of his departure. But the return of Jesus Christ will be different than his ascension in this sense. It won't just be a small band of disciples that will see it. The whole world will see it. Those who are in the world, those who have died and are in the grave, all will see the power and authority of King Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is why when the old theologians talked about the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, his his purchase and his redemption of a people, they they spoke primarily and centrally about what they called substitution. Jesus taking our place, becoming charged with the reality of our sin on the cross, we being charged with his righteousness. But they also talked about the victory of Jesus. His victory over 
death and his receiving of enthronement of the ascension into the heavenly places, that this was a fulfillment. And the recognition this morning is that we don't serve a Savior who died and is in the grave. We don't serve a Savior who rose again and is still walking around on the earth. We serve a Savior who has the highest position and status of any being in the universe. We serve a mediator who stands at the right hand of the Father in the throne room and he's giving all of his attention mediating for you and me. Do you know when you, when you look for a mediator, when you look for someone to broker a negotiation and a deal, someone to bring estranged parties together for peace, you look for someone with some clout. You look for someone with some authority. You want to make sense that that person sits at the table. You and I need to be reconciled to the Father. And Jesus sits at the table and by his blood has made the way for us to be one once again with God. And he's doing that from a place of authority. This is why we can with great confidence, no matter what happens in our world, no matter what presidents or prime ministers, or no matter what we have one magistrate or even bosses levy against us, the recognition is we have one who is the highest status who lives to make intercession for you and me. And the redemption and the ultimate justice will be brought upon the day of Christ's return. Listen to these words from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout in the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first and then we who remain shall be ascended, shall be caught up together with the Lord and in the Lord. So we shall be with him always. Encourage one another with these words. As together we sit on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and enjoy the reality of our enemies being laid low. We don't remain in Egypt. The deposit of the inheritance of Christ is ours in the spirit who dwells within us. And we are being carried as pilgrims across the wilderness, to the promised land, awaiting the day of Christ's return, where in the hope of his kingship, we, his people, will gain from his benevolent reign. Today is Christus victor. Christ is our victor in the ascension. He is the one who rules and reigns. You have nothing to fear, believer in Christ. The worst that the world can do has no match for the one who occupies the throne on your behalf. With joy in the Lamb who is the Lion, take comfort. He rules on high. Father in heaven, this day we give homage to Jesus, our King. We recognize that He alone is worthy of our worship for the sacrifice of His love given for us on the cross for his power in the resurrection and for his status and rule as king that he has been given the greatest and highest name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. Indeed, we bow before you, Lord Jesus, and we do so willingly and joyfully for your benevolent reign has led to our exodus, our deliverance, and we rejoice. Lord Jesus, as we look out at the world and we see a need 
for your rule and reign to spread throughout all of the earth. We would pray that your kingship would be increasingly evidenced in the days ahead. We pray that this world would begin to look a little bit more like heaven. That indeed heaven would come to earth through the reign and the rule of Christ by the spirit and the truth. And that you would use us as your living ambassadors towards that end. Let us this day be so charged with the message of your ascension that we go and spread the good news of a king who loves us so much that he died for us and who cares for us and who's bringing us home. Lord Jesus, prepare a place for us and come back and receive us. We look forward to the day of your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.